Westgate Chapel family, would you please stand and join us this morning in worship? Westgate Chapel. Woo! 
you can go ahead and have a seat for just a moment. We are so excited you chose to worship with us today. If you are a first-time guest, please check out the Visitor Center out there. We want to get to know you a little bit better. And also, you can fill out that connection card in the pew right in front of you, or you can do it on the app, which is awesome, or on the line, which is equally awesome. So please take the time to fill that out let us get to know you a little bit better. And also, and very importantly, we do want to pray for you as well. So please, and this goes for everybody in here, please let us know how we can be praying for you. As staff and elders, we pray together every week for each and every one of your needs, anything that God has laid on your heart. And so please take the time to do that. Also, I got to do this. It's a shameless plug. Westgate undefeated, yeah, champions right here. Myself, Drew, Dave up there in the booth. Well, actually, he's out there right there. There you go. We're all part of this team. And more than anything... It was, it's just great, the relationships we have formed and the way we have seen people grow closer together and grow closer to God through um, getting to play this awesome game of basketball together. So, yeah, like I said, shameless plug. I don't mind doing that for you. So, boom. Um, with that said, I am going to bring up another, one of my favorite people at Westgate Chapel, Randy Fall. Give it up for Randy. He's going to talk to you about campus care. Well, welcome to Westgate Chapel, everybody. I just choked up on that. That's what happens when you step and swallow at the same time. <laughs> uh, like Adam said, I'm the care pastor. Uh, I care for the facility and I care for people. And I do a lot of behind the scenes work that many of you are unaware. And I have a unique opportunity. It's called Campus Care. There's information that is available at all the entrances. It uh, shows you a deeper level of what to bring, what it'll look like. It's from 9 o'clock in the morning till noon. It's on a Saturday, April 1st. There will be no April Fool's joke. Get everybody over here and then there's doors are locked. What is Campus Care? Campus Care is a tradition that I started a while ago with the Lord's help, recognizing a need uh, to serve, to create an opportunity for people to serve uh, the outside of the facility. Before COVID, we would have a team of people that would come and they would uh, gather together, rake the leaves, mow the lawns, get the grasses ready. And it was always a tradition to do it just before the Easter season. Well, I'm, I don't want to change that. I want to have that availability as well to get everything cleaned up and ready to go because we're going to have lots of guests come into our house here, if you, if you will. So there's a tension. Before COVID, it was like pulling teeth just to get people to come in. And one of the things that I uh, would do, I would invite people and someone would come, some wouldn't or whatever. I want to remind people that this is simply an invitation. If you can make it, you can make it. If you can't, you can't. That's okay. Uh, it's, the focus is to be busy doing landscape work, cleaning up the sticks. If you look, saw the results of the wind yesterday, just looking in our yard, we're going to spend half a day just picking up sticks around this place. So I'm inviting you guys to help me get past this frustration by, if you hear the Lord say, yeah, I want to be a part of that, it's for the whole family. You're invited for those who are able to. But before COVID, I remember feeling a little bit overwhelmed. And then when COVID hit, I thought, man, now I'm really overwhelmed because it was like really tough for people to make a decision if they want to be around other people. Like, that was a right feeling that a lot of folks were feeling and had to work through. But I had a God moment. This last year in the spring and in the fall, we did so much work that people finally said, no more, I need to be outside. I wanna use my gifts and my talents 
we've recreated the mowing team. There's people that love to mow grass. If that's you, just let me know. There's people that love to trim. They love to plant flowers, care for flowers. There's even a position I'm looking for for people to water flowers. That was a bagod moment because he brought people. It was different than what I was used to experiencing. And it started to change me. I started to get my eyes off of expectations on my announcement of, hey, would you mind helping to expecting God to do what he does? And he works through the Holy Spirit to get to your hearts and have you come aboard and help me. Last fall, we had all this river rock that we had to put around the facility, all the mulch around the whole facility, all got taken care of. This next spring, April 1st, our regular campus care day, I don't have to do that kind of stuff. I just got to tidy up what we finished last fall because 65 people came out. It was awesome. Many hands light work, right? Amen. Well, I'm given another opportunity, and it's my joy to invite you to partner with me April 1st, 9 o'clock in the morning. We're going to meet over in the gymnasium area right by the east entrance. We're going to pray. There'll be snacks available for your little ones during one of the summer ones that we did um, in June. There was a family that had an infant laying on a basket in a blanket right next to where they were raking mulch in over by the bell tower. So it, it doesn't matter how old, it's just how willing you are to come partner with me to take part of the campus care. So started off with frustration. I watched God just move in the hearts of people even after COVID to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. It's overwhelming sometimes around here, like how are we gonna care for this place? But it's always been my objective to not use contractors, to use our family to do the work of the ministry physically and then spiritually as we pray for one another. So there'll be an opportunity to meet new people. For those that show up, it's a work experience, it's fun. There's all kinds of opportunities. I'll have a list available for anyone that wants to take part in helping. Would you join me and consider doing that? Uh, April 1st, nine o'clock. Uh, to noon. Chances are, if I get enough people, we'll be done before noon. So we'll see how that goes. Thank you for letting me have just a moment. What I'd like to do right now is uh, invite you guys to stand up and greet one another and maybe even ask the question, are you going to be there April 1st?
His broken hearts declare His praise For who can stop the Lord Almighty? Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah He's roaring with power and fighting our battles And every knee will bow before Him Our God is the Lamb, the Lamb that was slain For the sins of the world, His blood breaks the chains Most of you in here probably know this story 
um, about these three guys who wouldn't bow before anybody but God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there's some of you in here probably don't know this story very well. I'm just going to give you the synopsis. So there's King Nebuchadnezzar. He, the dude was very proud. Okay, this is, if you want the whole story, read Daniel chapter 3. Okay, I, I would give it to you. But he had this big, giant, golden image of himself made. And he made, he tried to make the entire country, everyone, bow down before it at certain times of the day. Well, if you didn't do it, he was going to throw you into a furnace and, yeah, you'd be dead. So, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were servants of the king. And they very, as respectfully as they could, they told the king, King, we will not bow before anyone other than the Lord our God. We love you, man, but we're not going to do it. And it made King Nebuchadnezzar so angry that he had the furnace heated seven times hotter than it normally is. How many of y'all ever been to one of those like thousand degree pizza oven places? Like if you ever actually had to pull a pizza out of there before? Anyone ever had to do that? How hot that is? Like it's insanely, insanely hot. Well, this was so much hotter than that. It's so much hotter in fact that when the people that were bringing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to the furnace, the guys that were bringing them actually burnt up. They burnt up to ash. That's how hot it was. So they put them in the furnace, and I'm just going to pick it up here. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. See this realization that he just had in between that? He saw this appearance of the fourth. It's, it's like a son of the gods. There's something very supernatural about this, about this other person in there. And then in this sentence, he says, servants of the Most High God. He's already shifted his mindset. Come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of, from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and all the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Anyone who's ever done a campfire, you know you smell like fire for the next three days at least. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had, sent his, who had sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Now that's what Jesus Christ does for us. Amen? He walks with us through fire. He doesn't leave us. Does God ever leave us? Does he ever forsake us? No, he doesn't. He's with us all the time. And if you're in here today and you don't know, maybe you're like, I don't feel very near to God or I don't feel like I know God, I'm telling you he's right there knocking at your door. 
He's offering you his gift of eternal life, and that's all he wants is to have a relationship with you. He wants you to feel his presence. And maybe you're here today and you say, I know God, I'm a believer. I trusted in him, but I'm having a really hard time right now. A lot of times I know in my own life, I haven't felt this overwhelming supernatural presence where I've seen some, a fourth figure standing next to me in the midst of the battle. I don't always feel, you know what I'm saying? You don't always feel that, that, that the goosebumpy feeling that you, that you want when you're really, those emotions, you don't always feel that. But the reality is when I look back on those times in my life, I've seen him at, at work every single time, even when I wasn't aware of it. I'm telling you, that can be you today. That is you today. God is with you. He is for you. He is not against you. He is with you. He's walking beside you. So as we sing this song, know that that's where this song is from. It's Daniel chapter 3, but it's also from so much more than that. It's from stories of people who walk through fire. They may not have felt God right there at the time, but they know that God is with you. Amen? Amen.
That's our declaration. We know, we declare, we believe that you are there through it all. God, you are there. Lord, I pray. I pray for that person or people here, God, that don't know you, that haven't yet experienced the fullness that comes from knowing you. God, the relief of the pressure of the weight of the world on us, God, you take that off. God, you take our sins, you cast them as far as the east is from the west. God, you walk with us through fire, through storms. We thank you. Lord, I pray above everything that everyone in this room would walk away at the very least being challenged with that thought. God, I pray everyone here would come to know you above everything else. Come to experience your presence in our lives, Father. There's nothing greater than that. May we yearn and long for that each and every day. It's in your holy and precious name that all God's people prayed. Amen. As we just continue to worship this morning, um, please... 
take up our tithes and our offerings by passing those buckets down. And if you are a guest, please feel free to let them just pass right on by you. Good morning. My name is Steve Fisher. If we haven't met before, I'm the pastor of student ministries here at the church. Uh, you'll normally see me over in the refinery and atrium area because I'm normally working with our high school students on a Sunday morning. But I get to be with you this morning up on, up on the platform and so excited to uh, be able to teach uh, to you this morning. Um, and so as we get started, well, maybe before we get started, just want to make you aware of two things coming up, right? We know that Easter is just two weeks away. One of my personal favorite times at church, I always love Easter service. Maybe more so than, actually, I know so. Christmas Eve, some people like love the Christmas service, but like, I don't know, Easter is, is something to it. And so uh, Easter is coming up here. We have... Um, Oh, look at that. Screen's already up there. We have our Easter program coming up, which a Friday will do a good service, a uh, good Friday service here. Uh, that will just be one service for the whole family that can be here. So I encourage, invite you out for that. And then on Sunday, we'll have two services as normal. Uh, There'll be about an hour long, once again, for the whole family. In between services, we will have a big egg hunt for the kids. But we just encourage you again to invite uh, friends and neighbors as often. It's a time of, hey, I, I might come and check out church and, and be able to invite them in uh, to what our family does here uh, on every Sunday morning. And so uh, that's coming up for Easter. Right after Easter, uh, we have a two-week baptism class that we're going to be doing on April 16th and the 23rd. Um, if you uh, have proclaimed Jesus as Lord and Savior and have never been baptized, we would encourage you that that is a step for every believer is to be baptized. Uh, and that's whether you've been a Christian for one minute or a whole lot of years and maybe have never done that step yet, we'd encourage you uh, to really maybe come to the class um, that this is what we are called to do as believers is to get baptized. Um, and so that class will just help walk you through what is baptism, what's the significance to it, what is it, and what isn't it. Um, and so we'd love for you to come to that if you are considering getting baptized. Uh, as the end of the month, April, I think it's 30th, will be a big baptism Sunday. We've had those before, just in a kind of amazing time to hear testimony uh, as people proclaim uh, that they've given their life to Christ. So just want to make you aware of that. All right. I think that is it for that. We are moving in our series, which is the last words. We're looking at the last words of Jesus uh, before he dies. Rob started that series off as we looked at some famous people and their last words and the significance of what they said just before their death. And we've already been in it two weeks and, and we've looked at the idea that where, not the idea, the statement where Jesus says, Father, forgive them. And Rob talked about the idea of forgiveness and, and what he was saying. And then last week uh, we did you'll be with me in paradise as Jesus is speaking uh, to, the, to the two thieves on the cross. Uh, and I don't know if you were here last week. It was, 
I mean, it was a great service, uh, a real call then to give our lives to Christ. Um, you can always catch up. I'll do a little plug. Like you can go on YouTube or our webpage. Uh, and if you're miss, missing because, you know, you were out for a week or something, go and, and rewatch a sermon uh, to catch up with where we are in the series. All right. So that's the last couple weeks. We'll continue in this last words. But I want to tell you a little story first. I am uh, one of six children. I have two older brothers and three younger sisters. And so as you can imagine, if you came from a big family or maybe you've just seen the big family, it's kind of crazy at times, right? Everybody's kind of bouncing all over the place. There's lots of things going on. Uh, We were playing sports and uh, taking lessons and piano and guitar. And uh, my parents homeschooled us when we were younger. And so we were going to co-ops and all sorts of things. My mom normally was the one picking us up, dropping us off, all of that type of stuff. And one of the things we came to realize is um, my mom sometimes had a habit of being late. I don't know for any of you students in the room, have you ever been the last kid there? And normally the last kid there is like always the last kid there because their parent is always kind of late picking them up. Some of you are nodding your head, you know what I'm talking about. And so my mom sometimes would be a little late picking us up for things and I kind of like it. My son just told me last night, he was at Pastor Dan's house and they were doing a, um, a group that they get together with. And he tells me every time, he's like, I want to be the last one. <laughs> he goes, I, he likes, he just wants to hang out. I want to I wanna hang out longer than everybody else. I said, buddy, you were the last one. He's like, no, there was two other people that walked out behind me. I'm like, that's technically you're the last, like you're the last one. But... For me growing up, I didn't always want to be the last one. And at times, I remember one time really specifically, we're, my brother and I are dropped off at our piano teacher's house. I don't know to this day. I don't know where she lived. Uh, it was kind of wooded area. And we pulled down her driveway, did the piano lesson. My mom's like, I got to run some errands. And then the piano lesson got done and we're kind of waiting. You know, the adults being nice and making small talk. But this was the 90s. And so then she said... I got places to go. You'll have to wait outside. And so she locked the door and she left. Like that's not kosher today. Like you could get away with doing that. And she left. And so we're standing there and like time is going by. I'm like, mom really forgot us. Like she's, she's not coming. Like I don't know where to go. I don't know how to get home. And my brother's like, yeah, we're like, you know, the unwanted dogs that are left on the side of the road. <laughs> I, I actually, he did say that. He did say that. But like there was that sense of like, I'm alone. We're left, right? She's gone. She's not coming back. I don't know what's happening. And so that's somewhat of a comical like childhood story, right? Obviously realizing she, she came back. Just she came, internet, she came back. I don't know if she's watching. Great mom, she came back. She was teaching us a lesson. Um, But, right, as we've gotten older, those feelings of time of uh, where we're left or abandoned, those feelings still continue at times. And it isn't maybe just, you know, someone forgot or is running a little late to pick us up, but maybe it's something deep, some sort of relationship break where you feel like maybe this person has abandoned or left me. Um... Maybe this is even sometimes gets transferred, at least for me at times, of feeling like, man, God, you are, like, where are you? You ever ask that, like, where are you? 
And we struggle through sometimes like, man, I've, I've had people abandon me or leave me. I feel like they pushed me away. And sometimes if I'm honest, I feel like God does that to me too. And so this idea of does God abandon us or forsake us is kind of what we're going to explore this morning. So we are in Matthew chapter 27. We're going to look at just three verses and then a whole bunch of other stuff. But Matthew 27, 45 through 47 says this. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Whew. I've been practicing that phrase in my office, just so you know. <laughs> Nothing worse than standing up in front of you and stumbling over words. Here's what I like to do. Uh, often, if you've ever, I teach Sunday school a lot, and as we go through scripture, I like to ask students, hey, what questions do you have? Because in fact, I often, when I read, I go, what questions do I have? And so I thought we'd explore maybe this passage by answering some questions. What questions do we have? We'll take some easy ones at the beginning, and then maybe try and tackle some harder ones. Um, so the first question I have as I read this passage, why did they leave those hard words to pronounce in there, right? We understand that the Bible is a translation, just, right, everybody nod with me, right? Like English is not God's favorite language somehow, right? We, this is translated, and it's translated, most of the New Testament is written in Greek, and yet those words are Aramaic. And so why are they in there? Right? If that was done for every word in the Bible, it'd be so long, right? They'd say it in Greek or Aramaic, then they'd translate it into English. But here's, we see this actually a couple times throughout Scripture. You see this with, um, um, in Mark 14, Jesus uh, is praying and he says, Abba, Father, would you take this cup from me? Not my will, but yours be done. There again, Abba is Aramaic, which is the common language of the time. And so it's not that he says it twice, that, but that they translate it. They leave the original and then they translate it as well. And so what you'll see is that when you look at old manuscripts, original manuscripts that are written in Greek, the Greek actually still leaves in those Aramaic phrases. They do the same thing that we did in English. And so they have it in Aramaic and then they translate it into Greek. And so when you're the people that translate our Bibles, right, into English, when they look at that, they look at the Greek manuscripts, they go, let's leave it. They almost always choose to leave it because that's how the original was. And so they'll leave the, the, the Aramaic in there and then they'll translate it into English just like how they did with Greek. And so it's not something to like freak out over or like, I don't, why are they putting this in there? There does seem to be some significance. If you look through your Bible at the spaces, they leave that in there, that there's something to that. But that's the easy answer. Second one for me is, as I read this, at the end it says, some of them thought he was calling for Elijah. That feels like it's just kind of out of left field for me as I'm, I'm, I'm reading this. I'm like, what are they thinking about? If you know who Elijah is in the Old Testament, you remember this guy? He's a very, um, um, 
one of the elite prophets of God, the mouthpiece for God. And he speaks to the people of Israel on God's behalf. And he ends up having uh, an apprentice, a disciple that comes along that he's going to pass the kind of the baton down to. And that guy's name's Elisha. I'm like, man, couldn't you split it up a little to help me remember? But Elijah and Elisha. And then I'm always like, wait, which one did the whole axe head float? And there's a there's a battle on Mount, some sort of mountain. And anyways, we can't get into all the stories. Great stories. You should read them sometimes. They're in the book of Kings. Read them. But Elijah, before he kind of hands over the reins to Elisha, they, Elijah gets swept up and says a chariot of fire that he's taken up. Um, and we don't get too much after that. Um, but Hold that piece. So the end of Elijah is him getting swept up by this chariot of fire. And then at the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, another prophet, prophesies that before the day of the Lord, the the day that God is going to uh, redeem the righteous and and bring justice to the wicked, before that day can happen, Elijah is going to have to come back. And so some people, as you read this, may be thinking that he's calling that the the day of the Lord is going to come and that Elijah needs to be here. And so maybe that's what they're thinking. You'd really have to kind of know maybe some more of of the, the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, to really understand that. But there was also another common belief that I think was more at the time they talk about understanding and, and being around, that Elijah was sent to help the righteous when they were in times of need. This came from extra biblical books. This isn't in the Bible. You're not going to be able to find that. But there was this belief that Elijah would come back and help the righteous. And so as they hear him calling, they're thinking, because he was a righteous that, right, he did nothing wrong, and then they're crucifying him, that maybe he's calling for Elijah. Okay, so I kind of understand why they maybe misunderstood them and they think that the original language thing. The next one is, is, is a little more difficult. It's why is Jesus asking a question? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? He's asking a question. And as I read this, I go, did he not understand what was going to happen? Did he not realize have you ever been driving, and maybe it's a route you drive all the time. You get in your car, it's maybe the morning, you start driving, and all of a sudden you kind of like zone in. It sounds better than zoning out. <laughs> 20 minutes later, you're there, and you're like, oh, I'm here. Have you ever had that kind of experience? Like, that to me, I'm like, is Jesus just, all of a sudden he's on the cross, and like, how did this happen? Like I wake up and I'm looking around and, and what, what happened? There is no way. There's no way. We look in scripture that over and over we see that he knew he was going to die. He knew what was going to happen. Look in John 18, 4. It says, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? This is Judas goes, betrays Jesus, 30 pieces of silver, right? Brings, brings soldiers to capture Jesus because he knows where he's going to be. And so he brings the crowd of men to where Jesus is at. And as Jesus sees them coming, knowing 
Did you catch that? Knowing all that was going to happen, went out and asked them, who is it you want? This is said several times in scripture that he knew what was going to happen. And so he's asking a question, not as though he doesn't know the answer. I can show you that you do this all the time. Easter's coming up. How many of you buy the chocolate bunnies for your kids? You buy the big chocolate bunnies? I love the chocolate bunny. We didn't have a lot of sweets growing up. I love the big chocolate bunny with the giant ears, right? The first thing you eat, you rip those ears off and right, start eating them. So imagine this. Imagine you just had Easter. Your kid wants some candy. You're telling them, no, we're not doing any candy right now. So you leave the room and you come back. And the Easter basket's sitting on the floor, all of that green grass that clogs up your vacuums all over the place. The Easter bunny is open. The ears are gone. And your maybe three-year-old comes walking in the room with just chocolate smeared all over their face and hands. And you say to them, did you eat the bunny? Right? You know the answer. You already know the answer. This is not a surprise to you. You're asking the question, but you already know the answer. And so I think as, as we think through that, sometimes that gets uh, in people's minds that they struggle with that. Like how did Jesus really not know he was going to die? Um, and, and then God was going to raise him up. Was that all new to him? And then there's all sorts of questions then. Well, I thought Jesus is God and God is omniscient, mean all-knowing. And so how does that work? But I want to show you something that to me is, is interesting as I, as I walk through this passage, uh, which is Psalms 22. Psalms 22 is written by David uh, right before Psalms 23, right? The one that a lot of you would know. But Psalms 22 is considered that, and like Isaiah 53, which we'll actually talk about later today, is considered a prominent passage for prophecy about the Messiah, about the suffering servant, about the one to come that was going to be anointed and then bear the burden of really humanity. And so we look in Psalms 22, and it doesn't just play out as a normal Psalms. It's almost a script. It feels like a script for what happens in the gospel as Jesus is taken and then crucified and then ultimately raised from the dead. And so I want to explore some of those passages with you because as we, as we answer the question, is he surprised? The other question that then kind of leads right into that is, like, what does it mean that he is forsaken? Like, that's, that's the big one, right? That's the, what does this really mean? So let's look through Psalms a little bit, and we'll, and we'll talk through that. So Psalms 22, 1 and 2, here's how it starts. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I find no rest. The opening line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is immersed in scripture. We know this as you read, he's constantly quoting the Bible, constantly throughout all of it. And so to go at his time of anguish, 
at his time of, of despair, that he's on the cross, why would he not also be quoting from Scripture? And so we get the opening lines that say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But as we continue, we see that this plays out exactly what has happened to him. Let's skip down to Psalm uh, verse 7 and 8. It says this, All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Ever see someone do uh, something just ridiculous? And I don't mean ridiculous from uh, kind of funny, but ridiculous like, man, like you're kind of an idiot. Sorry. I'm, I don't know. Right? And, and maybe for me, my spouse, because we do a lot of things together, and I may occasionally look over to her, and I don't say anything, but I do one of these. Right? Like, I'm like, what, what, what are they doing? I work in high school ministry, so maybe I have to do that a lot. Like, <sighs> the same word that's used there as they wag their head or they shake their head, we see not only in the psalm, but look what it says then just a few verses earlier from where we were at in Matthew. Matthew 27, 39. Those who passed by, hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. The same phrases, the same words. This is found in Psalms, and now it's replaying because it's a prophecy of what was to come. And so they're shaking their heads. They're hurling insults. And they go on to say, like, if you trust so much in God... Like, he should save you. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Matthew 27, 43. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. It's really, like, go home after the sermon. Not right now. Maybe some of you are. That's kind of what I do sometimes. And I'm just, now I'm just reading through all of Psalms 22. And you'll see so much of this is lining up exactly to what happened. And so they're shaking their head. They're wagging their head at him. They're insulting him. They're saying, yeah, God should save you. Like you trust in God, let him save you. And we see this play out from the Psalms then into Matthew. Let me give you another one if, if that doesn't convince you um, of what's happening. In 16, we'll jump down to 16 through 18. It says, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. This is David writing in the Psalms, not just reflecting on his own behalf, but also what is to come. He says in here that they're encircling me. My enemies are all around me. That they pierce my hands and my feet. We, do you remember uh, Jesus is resurrected? Hopefully. If you don't remember, they'll have, we'll talk about it in two weeks. Okay. And as he shows himself to his disciples, 
And then the disciples are like, hey, Thomas, you missed out. Jesus is, is back. And what does Thomas say? He goes, like, I want to I wanna touch where the nails pierced. Because we, we know that crucifixion involves nailing through the hands. And then they nailed him through the feet. And so Thomas wants to touch the marks. Once again, we get this in Psalms and then we get it playing right back out. It says that my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. Let's just look back a little bit. Matthew 27, 35. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. I'm a little embarrassed to share this story, but I'll do it anyways. Uh, when I worked at a camp, the end of the summer was great because there was this huge pile of lost and found. And all of us leaders would start like negotiating who's getting the clothes that actually like fit or the water bottles, right? All the good stuff that everybody, they're gone. They're not coming back. And so we start playing games or trying to figure out, oh, that's an extra large sweatshirt that a kid brought to camp. Like I'm taking that one, right? And we realize that this is no different than what ends up happening as they crucify Jesus, right? They're dividing up his clothes. Who gets what? Well, I want this. I want this. Let me have this. And this is prophesied in the Psalms and then comes right back into Matthew. And so when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think one of the ways to look at this is he's, He's quoting the psalm, but he's quoting more than just that section. Let me give you an example of how this might work. You and I are talking. Uh, you ask, hey, Steve, how are you doing? And um, don't give you the, like, I'm fine. I give you the, yeah, life's been hard right now. Like, I'm not in a great spot. And so we talk a little bit more and talk about how, man, I have faith in God, but, man, I, I'm still struggling and then maybe I make a statement like, yeah, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death and I just stop. What comes next? I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, right? You would know what I'm implying when I go, I'm in the valley. And yet I know all of this as well to be true. And so many uh, pastors, theologians, scholars, when, when they look at this passage, they go, He's, it's, it's more than just this question being asked. It's a statement that here is what's going to happen because he knows how the rest of the psalm plays out. Let me read you the rest of the psalm, or at least two more pieces of it. Psalm uh, 22, 3 through 5. So this would be right after, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And you are ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. To you they trusted and were not put to shame. This is the following to, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then yet I know you deliver and save. The end of the psalm goes like this, the last nine verses. 
I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. And all who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness. Declaring to the people yet unborn, he has done it. The psalm is not just a psalm of where are you, but it's, it's, it is definitely saying you got it. You are going to save the afflicted. You are going to not abandon us. You are not going to forsaken us. And so as we read that, I think that's a piece that we need to remember that that is a part of a larger text. And yet I'm going to make a little turn. I think why I believe this is true there's a tension to hold. And often, do you like things like nice, neat, and clean? Like this is the answer all the time. I want it precise. So much often I find that God doesn't always work that way, uh, at least with me. And sometimes there's mystery to God, right? Because he is other than us. And so why we see that this is in the context of the Psalms, can I remind you over on this side that he really took our sin, that he bore it. He took the consequences for it. That it's not just as if he's like, oh, yeah, you guys haven't been good over here, and now I'm going to do this thing on the cross, no problem. No, there is a real depth to what happened. And there's some mystery to it, but it is not though we can just dismiss him crying out as David did, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaiah 53, uh, a passage um, that maybe some of you know that talks about this specifically, says this in 3 through 5. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took upon our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. He took real punishment for our sake. Because we are separate from God because of our sin. And he bore that. And so as much as I go, he is at one time quoting from that psalm. There is a, there is a real spiritual consequence. Not just a body being crucified. But a spiritual consequence of bearing sin. 
and taking that punishment that should be ours on top of himself. But this is the very reason that when we're singing songs about how he walks next to us, that we can sing that because he did that. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. He knows it. He knows what it feels like. And he took it on so we didn't have to live in that state our entire lives, our eternity. I don't know for you, often for me, uh, distance from God um, comes often during trials. Sometimes it's the closest I feel to God at one sense, and sometimes it is the farthest. And so when you have a loss of a job that you are counting on for your family, or just your work isn't going as you thought it would, and you're like, I honored you, God. I'm trying to follow you. Like, where are you in this? Jobs can often evoke some of this because we find so much value from them. Sometimes it's, it's family dysfunction. Maybe it's a son or a daughter who have really walked away from God and you are in agony over it as a parent or a grandparent. God, like, what are you doing in their life? Where are you? Maybe it's just broken, man, broken relationship with family members that leave you feeling alone from them, but then also like, God, where are you in this mess? Maybe this is sickness, And I don't just mean a cold, but sickness that is overwhelming. That's life-threatening or actually life-taking. And I suffer through this or something that goes wrong with my body and I go, God, where are you? Or maybe it's a death of a loved one, a parent, a grandparent who was like the foundation for faith in the family and somehow maybe they get sick and they die and go, God, where are you? A child or a sibling die. God, where are you? And in those moments, we can feel alone, abandoned and forsaken by God. And here's the thing, that would be our reality without Christ. We would not just have a second, a moment, a season of going through that. We would have eternity in that space. But because God says, I take it, I bear it, we can then sing songs like, you never leave us. You don't abandon us. Scripture testifies to this over and over. Let me read you a couple of them. In the book of Acts, when they're talking about God creating the world, he says this in 2017, 27, God did this so that we would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far off from any one of us. God is not a distant God. He is not some God that is unreachable. He is right there just waiting for us to reach out and then to accept him. And he becomes then the reality of our life that we are united with him. Ephesians 2, 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, that's all of us. We were once far away, but we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
1 Peter 3.18, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to what? To bring you to God. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, struck down, but not destroyed. We are always carrying around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. The promise, the encouragement for you today that as, hey, I have accepted Christ. He is Lord of my life. I give him and he bears the penalty for what should be mine of separation from God. But because of him, this Easter, see, this is why I can be near. He doesn't abandon. He's right here. To me, that's, that's the thing I need to hold on to. I need to remember. You need to remember. He is not far off. He is with you. He is able to empathize and understand what you went through because he himself did it in a way that you cannot even imagine. And so when I struggle, when I feel alone, he is near. Let's pray. Dear God, um, man, we thank you for what you've done. I don't, even, I don't even understand all of the goodness that you are. Thank you for letting us see glimpses of what you have done for us. Would we hold fast to that? Would we hold true to that? In times of of struggle, would we know you haven't left us? That because of Christ, you are near. Would I believe that? Would I know that to be true? In your son's name, amen. As we close, uh, just a little bit different today, I'm going to, uh, I asked the band if they would play a song, one that uh, I personally uh, just speaks a lot to me. Um, it's called, Oh God. Um, and the reason I like it is, is twofold, is one, that it talks about when I'm struggling, when I feel alone, when I feel distant. And then yet is this refrain of, Oh God, you're near. And so I invite you this morning just you can stay in your seat, enjoy the music, the lyrics, and trust that where is it in my life that I feel distant? And then even in that situation, can I say, oh God, I know you're near.
shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardships or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That is it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, heights, or depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Dear God, uh, you are near. 
Thank you for your death, uh, bearing that, taking that, taking what would be for us a lifetime of separation from you and bearing that on the cross. And thank you that you have taken that and that now you are the one that justifies us, that brings us close to you. And through your grace, we are able to never be forsaken or abandoned. But you are near that you are with us. God, help us to believe that deeply. In your name, amen. Have a good Sunday, and we'll see you guys here next week.